Hi everyone and welcome to this podcast on obesity management. My name's Jan and I'll be your host today. I'm also pleased to have with me Elizabeth Allen to discuss this topic. Liz is a nurse practitioner in CDE who has been working in the field of obesity management for the past eight years. She's a World Obesity Scope Certified Practitioner in Obesity Management and has extensive experience in providing quality care for people living with weight issues. In addition, Liz has a background in acute care in ICU and CCU settings and midwifery, and she has also established Aboriginal health services alongside community health services in the Yarra Valley. She currently works privately as a clinician at My Weight Loss Clinic and also provides obesity management to her clients living with diabetes by her role as a diabetes nurse practitioner at Monash Health in Melbourne. Hi, Elizabeth, and Liz, and how are you today? Oh, great, thanks, Jen. And I'm really, really pleased to be able to come here and talk to you today about obesity management, of which I'm extremely passionate about. It helps to have a little bit of passion when you enjoy your work, isn't it? <laughs> it does indeed. It's, <laughs> it's because it's a tough, it's a tough issue that a lot of Absolutely. us face. So. Yeah. I'm sure it is. And as we get older, we all start to have that problem. Oh, dear. Um, <laughs> uh, now, as I mentioned, we're, today we're obviously discussing the topic of obesity management and weight loss. And I'm just wondering how has weight loss and obesity management changed over the years you've been working in the field? Thanks, Jan. Um, look, in the past, we used to believe that um, there was a, an equation of energy in equals energy out. And we've all um, known someone or actually been the individual themselves who's just been told to eat less and move more. But now we know um, through much, much research that there's a lot of deep science behind um, what's going on in the obesity, um, in obesity in humans these days that those old adages just don't stack up. Um, the, in, uh, internationally, uh, in America, in Europe, um, in Canada, uh, obesity has actually been classified as a chronic disease and it's treated as such. In the similar way to diabetes, hypertension, respiratory, cardiac, etc. cetera, um, what we know about um, obesity now is that um, if we stop treating it, it will um, it will come back. So the treatment, so many people can actually lose weight and they've actually found in the past that um, they've lost weight, but what's happened is that they constantly have regained that weight again. And now we understand why that is happening. We can do something about it. We've made big headway in both pharmacotherapy for individuals living with obesity as well as the metabolic surgical options that we can offer them. So um, modern day obesity management can be tailored to the individual um, and takes away some of the, the stigma, um, the bias and the judgment that has been associated with obesity management in the past. Great, thank you for that. And I just on a slightly another tangent, I guess, Clients are bombarded by weight loss ads on TV and social media. I'm wondering if you can tell us a bit about the science of weight loss and does every weight loss program follow the same science? Mm, okay, so when um, the answer to the second one is no. Uh, you know that um, it's probably a billion or trillion dollar industry out there mm. and we're talking weight loss industry as opposed to obesity management they're, they're quite different things mm -hmm. so um, most people who've carried weight will know that if they've lost weight they've inevitably regained it at some stage down the track and a lot of people who come to our clinic have experienced that many many years and, and often a lifetime of yo-yo dieting so taking weight off and then weight regain and it's a very common occurrence. Probably about 95% of people who lose weight will regain that weight. And it's, an, and it's influenced by a variety of different factors, including genetics, metabolic adaptation, 
Um, there's a, uh, a theory called set point theory, which I'll talk about in a moment. We also live in an obesogenic environment and we are affected by that environment in um, a change in our, epi uh, in our genetics, which is brought about through epigenetics, so um, environmental influences on our um, uh, gene expression. So set point theory um, suggests that the body has a natural weight range. And if you think about this, the body regulates a whole lot of things through the hypothalamus, you know, temperature, blood pressure, um, gut motility, all of those sorts of things. It also uh, regulates weight. And we don't actually have an awful lot of uh, choice over um, what our natural weight uh, is. Um, in a in a normal setting because it's a it's a survival it's a survival mechanism. If we had a choice over what our weight was, it wouldn't be evolutionarily sensible for that to happen. So set point theory suggests that there's a natural weight that the body's programmed to maintain, and when an individual gains weight and then loses it, the body resists further weight loss and tries to return to that original mm -hmm. uh, weight that that they gained too. So it will always attempt to defend its highest weight. And the, the way it does that, it does it through a number of mechanisms, uh, and, and I'll talk about that in a minute, but not all weight loss programs understand this. A lot of um, particularly programs that may be commercial programs, they are starting to change, which is great, and move with the science, but a lot of commercial programs in the past and also perhaps um, exercise-based programs that are exercise-based only and focus on the lifestyle component um, may not be taking this into consideration. Fair enough. Thank you for that. Can you help us understand why weight gain occurs? Um, are our bodies programmed to remember our weight? I think you've actually touched on this in the, in the previous question. Mm. Great question, Jan. Um, look, we did mention this a little bit in the previous um, in the previous question, but yes, our bodies are programmed to defend the highest weight that we've achieved as adults, and it does that through a couple of mechanisms through our genetics, our and our epigenetics. So, hang on, I need to do that one again. Can we? Yep. Cut that. Yep. Yep. Sorry, <clears throat> I haven't got my flow happening. Okay. Um, Great question, Jan. Yes, our bodies are programmed to defend weight. Uh, they do that through genetics and through changing our genetics, the concept of epigenetics. Um, it's a mechanism that is evolved out of survival biology, where when we were hunter-gatherers, um, we needed to ensure that um, our weight uh, didn't fluctuate too much. And that's a survival mechanism that comes back to times when um, as humans, we didn't live in a time of abundance. We lived in a, uh, times of scarcity of food, uh, food. And when there were shortages of food, we needed to be able to adapt to um, put food into storage for times when we um, didn't have access to it. So we've got a leftover mechanism from um, that evolutionary uh, survival uh, that we now deal with uh, when we live in a world of abundance. What we do know is that when we lose approximately 5% of our body weight or more, the body will detect a change and move into a state of metabolic adaptation where it doesn't feel safe because there's weight loss. Um, now, with that metabolic adaptation, um, it, it, it occurs through a change in our resting metabolic rate. So we get the, there's an ability uh, in the body to um, improve our energy expenditure or be very, very careful with energy expenditure and conserve energy. Um, and so when we, um, when we conserve energy, we become um, a little like uh, moving from being a Lamborghini to a Prius. And I talk to people who come to see me and I use that um, example to show them how um, their bodies have changed in the efficiency of how they use energy. And the outcome of that means that somebody who's carried weight in the past, lost weight, and then um, and tries to achieve weight maintenance, um, finds that they actually need less energy to create 
the same weight as somebody who hadn't lost weight uh, in the past. So in addition to that, um, there's a satiety hormone, leptin, which uh, in people with diabetes and people living with obesity, um, they have, they're known to have low levels of leptin. Leptin's a hunger, um, leptin's a hormone that occurs in adipose tissue. So when you've lost weight, you're going to have less um, active leptin as well. So leptin is a satiety hormone. So that is down, um, downgraded. And at the same time, the hunger hormone ghrelin is ramped up. And this is done through the hypothalamus. And it's that homeostatic mechanism of attempting to get the weight back to where it was prior to a weight loss, um, to weight loss occurring. So um, we will eat more, more uh, volume and more frequently in um, with decrease in satiety. So I say to people, they've kind of lost their off button and they'll find that um, they'll often be back in the fridge or going to the cupboard, even though they've eaten, that ghrelin is tapping them on the shoulder um, encouraging them to eat more. So it's very, very difficult to maintain a weight loss uh, given that those biological adaptations are occurring. So in your practice and from your experience, what treatment protocols do you use for obesity management that have delivered consistent results? Thanks for that. I, I think um, if we pull together the knowledge that we have about metabolic adaptation and the change in um, our hormonal state uh, following weight loss um, and then the body attempting to defend that highest weight, um, we need to take um, a particular approach to obesity management to give um, people with living with obesity the highest chance of long-term success, keeping in mind that we are talking about a chronic condition here. So what I've found works, and in the clinic that I work in called My Weight Loss Clinic, we use this four-pillar approach. Um, first of all, we um, look at two stages, the weight loss phase and then make weight maintenance stage. So when we're looking at weight loss phase, we, do, we uh, use four pillars. The first pillar is um, what you eat and what you drink. Um, realistically, you can't get away from the fact that if you are carrying weight and you're needing to take some weight off, we do have to do um, a calorie restriction in order for our bodies to tap into our fat stores. So that's one of the things that we do. And I'm not going to go into detail about um, uh diets for weight loss uh, here, but just to know that that is um, a very, very important. So we're talking about the lifestyle issues here. Um, one of the, th the other things is that quite often now in modern society, we tend to drink a lot of our calories, um, not just eating them. So we do encourage people to drink a lot of water, watch their alcohol intake, and particularly um, uh, their, their drinks that like smoothies and juices and things like that that have a lot of calories um, with not a lot of fibre in them as well. So that's, um, so that's very important. What we know about water also is there's evidence to show that if you drink two litres of water um, that's tap cold or colder, uh, there's a thermogenic effect that, is, um, that occurs in the body that basically... Um, brings the water up to body temperature and the process of that burns roughly about 100 calories a day. So um, when I'm talking to individuals about how to put these four pillars into place, um, I say to them it, it's basically free weight loss, drinking at least two litres, but we try to push that to two, up to three litres. The second pillar is physical activity. Now, with physical activity, you'll find a lot of um, people who run gyms uh, focus on this uh, component for weight loss um, probably more than anything else. But one of the things that we know about physical activity is it only accounts for a, about 10%. And if you're very, very physically active, up to 20% of our um, energy expenditure 
uh, for the day. So physical activity doesn't actually lend itself to the weight loss process very much. But what it lends itself to is the change in body composition. So it's extraordinarily important for individuals living with obesity who are trying to deal with um, uh, their weight to understand that there's a couple of things here that's very important. The type of activity they're doing. Um, so we want to do a number of different types of activities. So we want to, um, particularly for older people um, and women in the perimenopausal years, uh, that we know that they, they will lose um, muscle mass and bone density with weight loss uh, weight loss programs if they're not exercising. So we want to ensure that they're not um, uh, putting themselves at risk for osteoporosis. So doing some weight-bearing um, physical activity is going to be very important. And secondly, we want to develop some lean muscle mass along the journey of weight loss so that by the time an individual gets to their maintenance stage, they will have lost adiposity and not muscle mass. And that's an important thing to understand that you don't want to start your exercising when you've lost the weight. You actually want to start your exercising during the weight loss journey so that when you then move into the maintenance phase, you've already built some muscle mass and that muscle mass will offset the change in energy expenditure that we see in the resting metabolic rate. So um, people who come to see me in the clinic who've got a bit of a sporty background, um, they may not have been exercising much because they're carrying weight, but um, I find that it's actually easier to get them motivated than people that haven't done a lot of physical activity in the past. And so we have to put our um, motivational interviewing hats on and um, and uh, encourage them to start moving within the context of what their physical limitations are, keeping in mind that, you know, many of the individuals carrying quite a significant amount of weight and they're already doing a lot of activity just to move the, the larger body around. So um, I often encourage people to see an exercise physiologist or a physiotherapist, uh, particularly if they've got comorbidities. The third pillar is um, around, I think, really the most important pillar. It's about the having your head in the game. It's about the psychology of what you're doing. It's about being prepared for a journey. Um, when individuals are carrying weight, they know that um, and most people who come to see me, they've not just put a couple of kilos on during COVID. Many of these people have had lifetimes of carrying weight, losing weight, regaining, and they're feeling quite deflated, um, feeling quite smashed by the what's wrong with me, why can't I do this? So having a conversation with them around the science and having an individual understand that actually their bodies are actually doing exactly what they've been designed to do. They're, they're keeping them alive. And so if we can take some of the judgment off the table and particularly the self-judgment that individuals um, carry with them, um, that it's going to be uh, really helpful in helping them change their attitudes towards themselves and create some positive, um, some positive energy for the journey that they're about to take. In addition to having your head in the game, um, we also want to um, create some um, goals around uh, what they're hoping to achieve. So understanding what is the why, why am I doing this? It's not just about dress size, this is about health outcomes. Many people who are carrying weight, really struggle with um, comorbidities or complications of obesity. And so I try to encourage them to see their why as investing in their future, investing in their health. So it's an important concept. We also want to address sleep hygiene, stress management, and um, uh, pain as well, because people do have pain. A lot of people who are carrying 
um, around a larger body will often have joint issues, osteoarthritis. So getting on top of pain management and sleep hygiene, stress management and pain management are all around trying to limit the, um, the excess uh, um, uh, of cortisol that might be um, um, occurring in a body that is uh, chronically stressed. And so we know that with um, high levels of cortisol, it makes it more difficult to take weight off. And then we come to the fourth pillar. Um, so the fourth pillar is designed to complement the other three pillars. So what we know about pillar one and pillar two is that without pillar four, you get around about, um, on average, a weight loss that's potentially sustainable, but not often, of around about five to six percent. So when we add in pillar three and pillar four, which is pharmacotherapy, that's where the magic starts to happen. That's where we get um, the 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 weight loss results and the maintenance of that weight loss that is now with our modern medications starting to approach the similar outcomes that we see with um, uh, metabolic surgery. So things like um, gastric sleeves and um, bypass. They're not quite there yet, but they're very, very close. And we'll talk about those um, medications shortly. So that's stage one. Stage two is about weight maintenance. Now, people's people will ask me, well, how long do I stay on the medications? And my question back to them, well, if we understand that this is a lifelong condition, that it's a chronic condition, just like diabetes, I put it back to you, how long would you stay on your diabetes medication? Or how long would you stay on your antihypertensives or your cholesterol medication? So they start to understand, I was, oh, okay, so this is not just like taking um, uh, taking a course of antibiotics. This is something that I need to work on for the rest of my life. And they start to see um, how that may fit in. So weight maintenance is for many people, they will continue on the pharmacotherapy, um, albeit at a different dose. Um, they will need to continue with their um, uh, physical activity, as I said before, for that um, muscle mass, development and also um, to ensure that they're not getting osteoporotic bones um, and losing uh, lean muscle mass and um, not adiposity so um, or, or gaining adiposity uh, because muscle mass is hard, hard won and very easily lost as is bone density. Um, so weight maintenance phase is around honing the skills that you've learnt on the journey of weight loss plus continuing if we've gone down the pharmacotherapy um, avenue continuing on some form of pharmacotherapy to control that metabolic adaptation and keep the hunger hormones under um, under control and prevent them from ramping up and increasing our um, increasing our um, hunger. In, in addition, the calorie deficit required of somebody who has lost weight to prevent regaining weight is around about 400 calories a day. So a lot of people, what they do is they lose weight and then they go back to eating healthy, but similar to what they used to eat. Those people will regain weight because they go back to eating the same amount of calories as they did before they lost weight. Keeping in mind also, Jan, that they don't weigh as much as they did before they start, so they're not going to need as many calories to keep their um, uh, resting metabolism up to um, up to scratch anyway. So when you're in a smaller body, smaller bodies need less energy. So getting that concept across is really important. Thank you for that. So mm. you mentioned touched on behaviour change. I'm just wondering mm. how can behaviour change, CBT, impact obesity management? And is it a strategy used to maintain manage the long-term goals or does it also have short-term implications and uses? People living in larger bodies who've had a lifetime of obesity um, 
will often present as extremely traumatised individuals. They, as I said before, they um, the media, uh, the media itself, um, and uh, our um, at the powers that be uh, still continue to buy the line that it's an individual weakness to be living in an obese body. Um, but as we've seen, it's actually not the tr- um, actually not the truth. Um, but people living with obesity are often their own worst enemy. They're, they're traumatised, they perceive themselves as failures and they've lived a life of yo-yoing um, with their weight over their lifetime. Um, and so they've gone from success to failure, success to failure, and each time they fail, they just feel worse and worse. So behaviour change and CBT has a huge, huge impact in this space. So we want to reframe how people think about, firstly, themselves, and secondly, about the fact that they have a chronic medical condition, just like, you know, remember the days when we used to we used to think similar things about mental health, you know, that just go and, you know, in the old days it used to be go and take an aspirin or a Bex and go and have a lay down. Now we address mental health in a completely different way and we need to start thinking about obesity in the same sort of way. Um, so understanding um, that uh, we can manage obesity can help reduce that self-judgment that people often um, carry with them. Um, and once we understand that and that we know that we've got little control over our weight, um, in just um, just the same way as we've got little control over our temperature, our blood pressure and um, our breathing, uh, then we can um, stop beating ourselves up um, and start to understand and work around to that adaptation. And that's why that third pillar is so important. Um, and I spend an awful lot of trouble, a lot of, a awful lot of time, sorry, not an awful lot of trouble, um, talking about this. And, you know, um, Often people with obesity know and they are quite expert at eating plans. They're quite expert at physical activity plans. They know um, they know it because they've done it all. They've done it all. But often they haven't under, they haven't embraced that understanding of um, the behavior change. And so if we know that we've got um, our old friends, the hunger hormones, um, working at bay, when they start to notice those feelings, those um, an increase in hunger or starting to think, um, I talk about intrusive food thoughts. So when I'm talking to individuals about how they're going, I say, how, how are you going with the intrusive food thoughts? And we try to get them to start having an um, internal dialogue with um, how, they, uh, how they perceive hunger so thinking about head hunger versus physical hunger and starting to understand that relationship that they're having with food. Are they reaching for food because they've got that ghrelin hunger hormone tapping them on the shoulder, constantly saying, I think it's time for a snack. So if they start to um, understand that there's a mechanism working behind the scenes to get them to start eating more, it's a really important um, feature of what we're doing. The other thing that we'd like to do is get people understanding the role of stress and lack of sleep, as I mentioned before, um, because good sleep hygiene and stress management can improve insulin sensitivity um, just in the same way as it does with diabetes management um, and it can reduce that excess cortisol production which makes um, weight loss more successful and and more maintainable as well. So I do talk to um, my individual uh, clients about creating some SMART goals. And when we've done an assessment, I actually will follow that up with some examples of some SMART goals. And one simple example is just buying a water bottle, um, setting a timer um, on your phone, to encourage you to start drinking more. Uh, another another simple one is just to go to the cupboard and start having a bit of a clear out. 
um, and creating some, doing some food prepping so that when you go to the supermarket, you're not, um, you're not um, at the whim of, um, of uh, impulse purchasing. Uh, and to go to the supermarket at a time when you're not feeling hungry as well is, a, is an important one. So all of those sort of behaviour changes are really important for the journey of weight loss, but they come into play massively again to, um, to keep the weight off um, once we get to a goal weight. Thank you for that. And, and now moving on to the pharmacology or the fourth pillar, I was wondering mm. if you could t tell us about what pharmacotherapy is available for, for, for your clients and what is the cost associated with these treatments? Um, Jane, given that we're doing a podcast for ADAE, we as clinicians have had the fabulous experience of um, GLP-1 receptor agonists uh, in our um, in our toolkit for people living with diabetes, and now we also have that um, that medication class in our toolkit for people living with obesity. But let's have a look at what we've had in the past before we get to the GLP ones. Um, so, uh, those of you who've been around for a while may remember Allistat. Um, Allistat is um, marketed as Zenical. And uh, it, it's basically a medication that um, reduces the absorption of um, dietary fat. And in some people who've had, who do have high fat diets, um, who are reducing their fat intake, it can be a useful medication, uh, but it's not overly successful in um, getting a large amount of weight off, around about five to 10% over a six to 12 month period. The problem with all the studies that it, um, well, it's also not very expensive, but its main problem is the side effect, um, that it's gastrointestinal. It's, um, uh, it causes in people who uh, are taking it, um, who then perhaps ingest a larger amount of fat in their diet, they get um, very nasty bloating, flatulence and um, diarrhea that there's absolutely no control over and it's extremely distressing. And most people who've um, experienced that will, will not take it uh, again because it's extremely, uh, extremely uncomfortable. One of the very old medications that's been around for many, 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 many years and um, was used uh, almost exclusively in obesity management in the past is fentamine. Now, fentamine, fentamine is from the amphetamine-based uh, family and what it does is it um, stimulates and increases the amount of noradrenaline and adrenaline that is um, produced. Uh, and because of that, you're going to get a catecholamine um, uh, response. And if we think back to what that means is you can get increase in heart rate, increase in um, uh, um, blood pressure in people that have got um, angina or hypertension that can be a problem. Um, also, because it's a stimulant, um, it causes uh, problems with sleep, um, dry mouth, and um, um, so and also can have an impact on your mental health. So, so people who have um, mental health issues or uncontrolled hypertension, it's not recommended. Um, it's also not recommended for long-term use. So. Uh, where I find it fitting in is it's actually a really good adjunct medication that we can add to some other medication um, in lower doses um, and to to get uh, a, syner a synergistic effect with other medications. So in a similar way to the way that we add different diabetes medications together, we can use, as an example, a GLP-1 and fentamine um, to achieve um, a higher weight loss particularly if we've um, got to a max dose of um, our GLP-1 receptor agonist and we've hit a stall, then fentamine in a lower dose can be added. Um, because it's in a lower dose, you don't tend to get the side effects as, um, as much as if you were using higher doses uh, on its own. Um, 
There's another um, combination that we can use fentamine with, and that is with topiramate. Now, in America, topiramate and fentamine is actually FDA approved for uh, weight loss. Um, in Australia, it isn't TGA approved. Um, we believe that the reason for that is, is mainly because we're a very small market and it's not worth um, the, uh, the, the company's uh, effort to get it over the line, to get it approved. Um, however, we can use topiramate uh, either on its own or with fentamine um, off-label. Now, topiramate is a medication that is used for epilepsy and also for um, migraine prophylaxis. Um, in um, addiction medicine, it's also used for um, uh, alcohol use disorder. Uh, and what we find that that in combination with fentamine um, gives us not only appetite suppression, which you get from the fentamine, but the topiramate works in that mesolimbic um, dopamine, dopamine reward feedback system to dampen down um, the, um, the impulsive uh, impulsivity and it um, it makes people less likely to be looking for snacks and having those invasive food thoughts. So that combination works really well. It's very successful between 10 and 15%. But again, um, topiramate um, in itself um, can lower the seizure threshold. So we need to be very careful. Um, we use it in low doses in uh, weight loss, only up to 100 milligrams a day. Um, so it's less likely to be an issue. But if somebody has a background of um, having um, having um, seizures, then we, we're very careful. Um, so it's also not expensive. So that's also important. Um, then we come to Contrave, which is bupropion and naltrexone. Now, um, this, uh, this is, um, again, a good combination, working in, in similar way. Bupropion um, is, um, again, a, a dopamine agonist, so it is um, uh, used as an atypical antidepressant. Um, it's not an SNRI, or an, um, however, it works in a similar way. Uh, so it gives um, some appetite suppression there. And the naltrexone works in a similar way to the topiramate in it, uh, reduces the um, intrusive food thoughts. So naltrexone is also used in alcohol um, uh, alcohol um, use disorder. And so anyone who is uh, um, who has issues with um, alcohol use disorder or people who are on narcotics um, can't use this medication. Um, or have to use this medication with extreme precaution because they'll go into withdrawal because um, the naltrexone blocks those receptors that those um, alcohol and um, uh, narcotics are um, occupying. So they can go into an extreme withdrawal. So we have to be careful with the choice of um, individuals who are using this medication. Um, bupropion, uh, like other antidepressants, we also have to be very careful in um, that uh, um, in small uh, in, in small groups of uh, susceptible individuals, it can increase uh, depression and suicidality. So I'm very, very cautious of the selection of this medication, um, given those uh, potential side effects or the limitations in who we can use it in. I tend to only use this medication in in individuals who perhaps are not suitable or have had bad reactions with GLP-1 um, receptor agonists. So that brings us to um, the GLP-1 receptor. Oh, um, on Contrave, Contrave is actually quite expensive. It's close to $400 a month at maximum dose. Um, to limit the amount of side effects, we start on a low dose and build that up in a similar way to the way we will build up um, metformin um, in our individuals who are um, who have diabetes. So, um, it, but it is an expensive um, medication. Um, so, talking about GLP one receptor agonists. So, um, most of us uh, who work in diabetes will be familiar with 
liraglutide and um, semaglutide. Um, liraglutide is approved in Australia uh, by the TGA uh, for weight loss and liraglutide um, uh, is um, uh, marketed as Saxenda for weight loss uh, in Australia. It's not, um, none of the medications that we use for weight loss in Australia are on the PBS and that's testament to um, our attitudes towards people who are living with obesity, that they're not, um, that they are not, um, they're not funded, um, which is a whole other story on itself. So uh, earlier uh, this year, semaglutide 2.4 milligrams was approved in Australia by the TGA uh, and is marketed as Wagovi. Um, now, it's not available in Australia yet. Wagovi hasn't arrived on our shores. Uh, but what we know about um, semaglutide 2.4, and we use um, uh, semaglutide 1 milligram for uh, individuals with diabetes, um, and we, we found, and anyone who works in diabetes, uh, the diabetes arena knows too well the effect of semaglutide in individuals with diabetes that they, um, they, they do usually uh, lose weight. But semaglutide 2.4 milligrams, um, their dosing schedule is similar to that of, of um, uh, Azempic. However, once we get to one milligram, we then go one milligram, 1.7, then 2.4. So you can take it up to 2.4, staged in very, very slowly and titrated according to effect um, and, and also the side effect profile. So with any of the GLP-1s, we know that they tend to have a side effect profile, which is um, usually transient nausea. They have uh, an effect um, on gut, gut motility. Um, they, I, when I talk to my clients about this medication class, I tell them it's a little bit like a chemical lap band. It reduces the volume of food they can physically eat. And um, uh, our diabetes educators out there know that when they're coaching um, their clients with diabetes, when they start them on the semaglutide, that they encourage them to eat from smaller plates and ensure that they're not having high fatty or high sugar foods. And of course, if you're trying to take some weight off, those sort of foods would be um, high caloric foods as well. So we're trying, trying to avoid those, um, those foods. So we haven't got price yet for semaglutide 2.4 in Australia. Suffice to say, it's going gangbusters in the rest of the world. Uh, and we know that in America, it's priced at a very, very high price point. Uh, but then so is Zempic. So we have no idea. Coming back to liraglutide, Saxenda is around about $385 a month at the three milligram dose. So again, similar to in pricing to Contrave. And talking about the cost of medications, you can see that if we're talking about anything from $80 to $100 a week, there's a lot of people who cannot afford that. So, um, uh, individualizing someone's um, uh, medication choices may come down to what they can afford as well as what's going to work well for them. Uh, so in the pipeline, we know that we've got tisepatide, which is a dual agonist, GIP and GLP-1. Now with tisepatide and there's some other triple agonists on the way, we're actually getting uh, results in weight loss um, of around about 20 to 25%. Uh, over a six to 12 months um, uh, run in. And that is approaching uh, metabolic or bariatric surgical outcomes. So I was listening to a podcast the other day that was actually, um, you know, an, a, a bariatric surgeon saying, um, are the new pharmacotherapy options for obesity management going to do bariatric surgeons out of a job? And the answer is no, of course not. There are not enough bariatric surgeons and there's not enough bariatric surgery to, um, to be able to provide support to people living with diabetes, uh, with di not diabetes, with obesity. Um, so these medications can take some of the pressure off bariatric surgery. Um, and quite often what I find is that 
um, individuals who start taking these medications who were considering bariatric surgery as an option now find that they've actually got an opportunity to um, utilise something with pharmacotherapy and the other three pillars that they um, they, did, they didn't think was going to work for them and they've got great outcomes. Um, yeah, so in our arsenal of medications now, we have huge, huge uh, a number of choices. And um, so we can tailor um, pharmacotherapy specific to an individual's um, risk, uh, um, side effect profile, and I guess what they can afford as well. Okay, just, just uh, you've touched on a lot of this, but I'll, I'll ask the question anyway. Um, <laughs> how do you determine which medication is best for a particular client? And is there a protocol that you follow when that decision is made? Given that we've just spoken in quite a lot of depth about side effect profiles, um, cost uh, and limitations of where the medications can be used, um, we have to pull all of that together. Um, in Australia, there's an obesity, Australian obesity algorithm, uh, which essentially says that we can use pharmacotherapy in individuals who have uh, obesity, which is classified as a BMI of 30 or above, or in individuals who are overweight, who have a BMI of 27, and and in addition to that, have a comorbidity, so or um, or who or are individuals from a high risk group. So high risk groups could be um, Indigenous Australians, Pacific Islanders, um, um, and um, people who uh, um, who perhaps the BMI scale doesn't suit. So. We know that BMI um, was based on is based on a Caucasian modelling, and so some people who are perhaps from an Asian background, um, a BMI of twenty eight could equal the BMI of somebody from a Caucasian background or who had a BMI of thirty. So BMI is not the only thing that we look at. So um, we look at the indications and the contraindications of those medications, and we try and tailor. Uh, a medication that best suits um, the individual. So, um, when we're uh, when we're assessing the suitability of a medication um, with an individual, uh, particularly, uh, look here's an example: uh, GLP one uh, receptor agonists. Then, you know, whilst we love them and they have made uh, a huge impact in a in obesity management. They're not suitable for all individuals. As an example, um, people who have a past history of pancreatitis or those who've got a family history of medullary thyroid cancers, uh, then um, GLP-1s aren't, um, aren't appropriate to use in those individuals. Coming back to pancreatitis, it depends on what was the cause of the pancreatitis. Um, but, you know, uh, and that is the same as um, when we're using GLP-1s in uh, diabetes management as well. So as I said before, uh, fentamine and Contrave are not suitable for individuals who've got uncontrolled hypertension. Um, Contrave is not suitable for individuals who've got past history of seizures or major depression. Um, most of these medications aren't suitable for people who are on um, Mayo inhibitors. Um, and I'm, you know, uh, I have yet to come across an individual who's on a Mayo inhibitor, but we must always keep that one in mind. Um, they're they, um, contraindicated um, with most medications, uh, Mayo inhibitors. Um, uh, I did mention before that tapiramate uh, is useful um, uh, to um, individuals who have addictive issues. Um, or migraine. So it may be not what their limitations are, but it may be um, what else is coexisting for this individual. So uh, some people are already on uh, migraine prophylaxis. Um, so uh, tapiramate might be a useful medication there. Um, so we also, uh, individuals with uh, diabetes, pre-diabetes, 
anyone who has any elements of um, metabolic syndrome or polycystic ovarian disease, uh, the GLP-1 uh, receptor agonists are a fantastic choice. So we're, we're assessing the, the individual's um, life as a whole, uh, what their past history is, what their comorbidities are, what their uh, experience is in the past. Um, some people have ADHD uh, and are on medication for ADHD. Uh, and we know that um, that duramine is probably not going to be as effective in those individuals uh, because it'll, it'll have potentially the opposite effect um, and also may, um, may enhance um, the medication that they're already on. So we'd need to be uh, very careful. On um, ADHD, it's really important because of the potential for impulsivity um, and um, uh, um, increase in snacking and possibly um, binge eating. Uh, it's really important. I encourage individuals who have ADHD to um, to uh, seek treatment for uh, for that because it makes their obesity management much more successful if they have ADHD treated. Thank you for that. Um, as we know, clients are often very well informed about treatment options and pharmacotherapy from TV, social media and so on. And how do you manage such clients without disturbing the, the power shift? We live in a world of screens nowadays and a lot of people out there um, are very, very well informed either through uh, Google or their social media, um, and they may present um, to uh, an obesity clinic with a preconceived idea of what is going to be useful for them. So one of the things that I like to do is set the scene um, to do a detailed assessment. Um, when, we, um, when we do an assessment, before I even get to the assessment, I will actually talk to them about this, the science of weight loss and regain so they can start to understand where some of the treatments fall into place. And if we're doing that, then they can start to understand why the conversation might move in a particular way. Um, when most of, um, in, in my weight loss clinic, uh, where I work, it's actually a telehealth-based program um, and some of the, the consultations are done via the phone. Um, when um, I first introduce myself uh, to an individual, I like to do an actual video telehealth health conference with them so that we can see each other, we can um, start developing um, a therapeutic uh, relationship and I can, it also gives me an opportunity um, to see, to actually see uh, the person in front of me um, and to, uh, you know, we can see a lot. We can do a lot of assessment by what we see, um, whether we can see somebody who's um, perhaps, um, uh, well, for a start, the uh, body shape, you know, is one of the things that we we do is we say, well, what's you know, what sort of body shape are we talking about? Are we talking about um, that uh, apple shape versus the pear shaped body? Um, because that's very important for um, cardiac uh, cardiovascular risk. So um, I also get people to do measurements. So uh, I say to them, look, but getting on the scales is only tells us part of the story but understanding our body composition and how much visceral fat that um, we might be uh, carrying on our body actually um, impacts the, the risk for other things happening like heart attack and stroke. So it's important to understand what our risks are there. And also along the journey of our weight loss, we can see a change in that body composition. That's a really, really um, positive thing for. Um, individuals who may uh, 
get that metabolic adaptation kicking in and they hit a plateau in their weight loss and they're going, oh, well, I'm just not losing any weight. I haven't lost weight for weeks and weeks. But I say to them, well, how about let's do the measurements. Let's see what's going on with our measurements. And if they've been doing the exercise and building some muscle mass, they may not have had a shift in their weight, but they certainly had a shift in body composition and they can see that in their measurements. So it's um, it's really a positive thing. Um, so the other point I'd like to make is some people, as I said before, come with a preconceived idea and they'll write um, on their assessment thing is I've heard about, um, you know, uh, this medication called Zempic and I'd like to try it. And um, I also have to, um, you know, say to them, let's talk about the medications towards the end. Let's talk about all the other stuff in the beginning. And also remember that a lot of uh, people who come uh, for weight loss are women who are in um, the potential reproductive uh, period of their life. Uh, And so it's very important that they understand that taking some medications can actually be um, contraindicated if they're considering a pregnancy. So um, I have a number of individuals who've come to me who are actually wanting to take weight off because they want to get pregnant. And so using a long-acting medication, such as a GLP-1 receptor agonist, may not be the most appropriate choice for them, even though they may have come with their heart set on it. When we explain that you need a minimum of a two-month washout um, to clear the medication from your body before you start trying for a baby, then they may go, oh, actually, maybe that's not the right medication for me. So when um, I'm uh, talking to a client, um, we we have a conversation and it's we I engage with them and explain and find out what, as I said, when we come right back, what is the why? Why am I doing this? If it's to have a, a pregnancy, uh, then some of the medication choices um, may be off, off the table. The other thing that's really important to, um, for those women who are in their reproductive years is to understand that when weight loss is achieved, in a lot of women, fertility increases and men in fertility increases um men's um sex binding hormones uh um improve and so does their testosterone axis and so pregnancies can actually happen um perhaps when people are not trying so making sure that um individuals are protected with contraception is going to be very very important as well um, and that they can fall pregnant inadvertently just through the process of weight loss. So there's a lot, um, a lot to uh, discuss. Uh, lastly, I do explain to individuals who come to the weight loss program that it's all about the four pillars, not one pillar or two pillars. Um, I explain that. You can't cherry pick the system if you want to get the outcomes that we can offer. Um, So as I said before, now that we've got those medications that can approach uh, similar expectations as um, bariatric surgical outcomes, that's only when we pull the four pillars together. Um, Some people will actually come and say, oh, I just want some Azempic. And then if I explain to them that if we just use the medication on its own without uh, getting the lifestyle issues and the head in the game, then they're actually going to be quite disappointed with the outcomes. And our listeners there will know that um, our, um, our clients who are living with diabetes who are on GLP-1 receptor agonists, many of them aren't losing weight because they're not actually putting into place perhaps the lifestyle components that are required for that to happen as well. So I guess, um, you know, not disturbing the power shift, the power, there is, I guess, uh, the power of the individual to pick up the phone and make that appointment in the first place is incredibly important. 
And I want to ensure that they continue to be empowered with the conversation and that they are um, interacting with me as, as partners in developing a plan that works for them. Um, and once we um, pull all that apart and reconstruct it, then they're usually quite happy with the outcome, hopefully anyway. So, yeah. Yep. Fair enough. Thank you for that, Liz. I know we're nearly mm. there. Um, yes. It's a, a long topic, and a, but interesting. Um, so just before we finish up, I was wondering if there's any other advice you'd like to share with our listeners on, on obesity management. Jan, thank you so much for the opportunity today um, to come and talk to uh, the educator community out there, um, remembering that many of our clients with diabetes also have a crossover into being overweight and living with obesity as well. Uh, so it's going to be very important to understand that we need to address the obesity as well as the diabetes. And we, we know that, we already know that. But one of the sad facts is that um, a study that was undertaken um, called Action IO and Action Australia showed that individuals living with obesity who were wanting to address their obesity um, were asked, how long did it take for a health professional to talk to you about managing obesity or offering you some support to manage your obesity from when you realised you needed help to when it actually happened. And it was on average nine years. Now, nine years is a very long time. Would we be happy having diabetes for nine years or hypertension for nine years and nobody addressing it? So I think um, what we need to consider is addressing obesity first as uh, a very important thing. Um, I want to also talk about the fact that obesity is uh, currently a global health crisis and there's an incredible burgeoning cost associated with uh, living with obesity, not just for the individual but to the community. Um, so the individual uh, living with complications of obesity but the cost and the comorbidities and the complications that arise from not addressing uh, obesity uh, in a um, in a in a sensible and realistic way uh, is going to impact on the health budget as well going forward. So again, um, you know, obviously we're trying to lobby uh, government um, to come upstream and start thinking about the social determinants of why we develop obesity and looking at um, looking at prevention to begin with, but then addressing the fact that there are a lot of people. So there are 60% of Australians living with either overweight or obesity, and it's roughly about 30% in each category. So that's 60% of Australian adults um, or and in the in our children, one in um, one in four, so twenty five percent of children are in the overweight or obese category. So you can see that we are looking at a future if we don't address this now, of a huge blowout uh, in the health budget, in the health costs, but also um, a huge uh, a huge um, negative impact to our individual selves. Uh, if we don't address if we don't address overweight and obesity, so we've got a lot of work to do. Um, I think one of my extreme disappointments is that when it's 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 a double edged sword. sword. When um, when an individual comes to me to get help with their obesity and they've had a lifetime and they're devastated um, by their lack of success. Um, when they come to talk to me, they will often say it's the first time anyone's allowed them to tell their story. That's number one, and that's really sad. And number two, they say to me, I never knew that about metabolic adaptation and the hunger hormone. 
and nobody's ever told me that before. And I like to say to them, well, you know, unfortunately out there in um, the health professional world, not a lot of people know it out there either. And we can see that by the weight bias and stigma that has been happening um, uh, both in uh, medicine, in pharmacology uh, and in the media. So uh, I think tackling weight stigma and bias is, is uh, we all we all need to take a look at ourselves uh, and how how we think as well when we see um, an individual coming and sitting in front of us who is living with overweight or obesity and start thinking about what our own biases are as well. Um, so coming back to that issue around chronic disease, we need to do the same for individuals living with obesity that we do now for people with hypertension and diabetes and all the other chronic conditions. Um, we need to do better. And ideally, it'd be great to see um, obesity medication funded in the future because currently um, it's uh, extremely expensive. And um, if we think that where we're seeing the largest growth in obesity uh, rates is in low socioeconomic communities uh, and rural communities and communities who um, uh, uh, tend to um, be more affected by negative social determinants, they're also not going to be um, financial enough to afford the, the treatments that we have on offer now. So it's a very inequitable um, playing field at the moment where wealthier people can afford this treatment and they're the ones who are probably less likely to need it um, as time goes on. So there's a lot of food for thought uh, there to, um, to go forward with, Jan. And thank you for having me today. It's been fantastic. Thank you, Liz, it, once again for giving so much of your time today and it really has been great to, to talk to you. So thank you to those of you listening to this podcast for taking the time to do so. And to obtain CPD credit for this podcast, please go to the ADEA Learning Management System at learning.adea.com.au and complete a feedback evaluation. So until next time, goodbye.